You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Good morning, Roots Community Church. I invite you to remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our text this morning comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. The verses should be up on the screen as well. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. Paul writes, And you, and you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, Doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Church, this is God's holy word. You may be seated. My main hope and prayer this morning is that we would see Christ, that we would simply see Christ, and that we would marvel at who he is, And particularly in these verses, that we would marvel at what he has done, what he has accomplished for our salvation. After all, is this not the goal of theology, right? To worship? As one pastor and writer puts it, the ultimate goal of theology is not knowledge, but worship. If our learning and knowledge of God do not lead to the joyful praise of God, we have failed. We learn only that we might extol, which is to say that theology without doxology is idolatry. Theology without worship of God is not worship. The only theology worth studying is a theology that can be sung. I don't believe it's possible to truly understand and appreciate the great things of God without being stirred with passion and zeal and joy and delight and fervor, end quote. As we continue in our series on the supremacy of Christ, and as we continue in this book, in Colossians, we see Christ on full display. In the last section, verses 15 through 20, we saw the person of Christ, the preeminent one, the one who through, through whom everything was created. And in this week, in this passage, verses 21 through 23, we see Christ's incredible work at the cross for the church. This text before us this morning, it's a window. It's a stunning window into the panorama of God's redemptive work accomplished in Christ. Which brings us right to the burden of this text. The burden of this text before us this morning 
is to exalt Jesus Christ who is supreme over salvation and to warn the church not to abandon her supreme Lord. The burden of this text, the burden of this text is to exalt Jesus Christ who is supreme over salvation and to warn the church not to abandon her supreme Lord. The sermon is broken up in two sections, two points. Point one, the supremacy of Christ in salvation, verses 21 and 22. And point two, a warning to us, which is, point, which is verse 23. So two points, the supremacy of Christ in salvation and a warning to us, the church. With that said, look with me at verse 21. Under point one, the supremacy of Christ in salvation. Paul writes, and you. And you. The first two words here in our text marks a shift in direction from where Paul was going to where he's now heading. As mentioned last week, we marvel that the grand depiction of Jesus Christ, the preeminent one, the sovereign king of the universe. This, the verses 15 through 20 last week, which we looked at, as Pastor Hans mentioned, this, this was a hymn. This was a hymn that probably would have been circulated in the church. This wonderful hymn, this theology to sing about who Jesus is. And let's look at it. It bears repeating. Verses 15 through 20. He that is Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So it's really clear, Christ here is supreme. There's no doubt about it. And then we get to verse 21. And Paul says, and you. What he's essentially saying is, we just unpacked who Jesus is. Now it's time to shift the focus and attention on you, church. And what do we find when the church looks at her past identity? What the church finds when she looks at her past identity, is not the kind of glory and splendor that we see in verses 15 through 20. Look with me at verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. (laughs) What a remarkable contrast. Christ, who is supreme, the image of the invisible God, the one through whom all things were created, the head of the body of the church. 
Christ, the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's Christ. You, church, you were once alienated from God. You were hostile rebels against God. You, church, you were rampant with wicked deeds. The contrast between Christ and the prior identity of the church in this verse is as opposite as day is from night. And so here in verse 21, we see the fallout from Adam and Eve's sin. Alienation, hostility of mind, and wickedness. All human beings in the same pattern as Adam, they find themselves alienated and distanced from God. This is why in the garden, right after Adam and Eve sin, they go and hide from God, even though they were created to walk in the cool of the garden with him. They were created for fellowship and communion with God, and yet they're hiding, they're alienated. There's a separation, there's a chasm. As Mark Dever puts it, we were made aliens. We were to God what green beings from outer space with antennas are to us. Our sin made us strange to him. Church, not only were you estranged from God, but you were once hostile in your mind against him. And what Paul has in mind here is not just a few hateful thoughts against God, but more so of a disposition that our mindsets were bent against God. And so, of course, flowing from relational alienation from God and a hostility of a mindset against God, it only makes sense that the natural outworking of that would be wickedness. As Paul puts it, evil deeds. The relational and cognitive enmity against God, they naturally find their expression and outlet by committing wicked actions against God and against people who are created in his image. So we, the church, we were wicked. We were alienated. We were hostiles, rebels against God. This is a description of the church before Christ's saving intervention at the cross. And the question is, why is this important? Why does Paul mention this? What Paul is doing is he's laboring to show, to display the depravity of man. What we see here is Paul is setting up for us the most remarkable reconciliation that we will ever witness. And that we, by his grace, the church, have experienced. Look again with me at verses 21 and 22. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Paul says, you, who were alienated and wicked, hostiles against God, You, he's now reconciled. He's brought peace again. This is a really big deal. This is a huge deal because of who it is who has been reconciled. 
sinful man separated from the life of God by his own sinful disposition and actions, Christ has now reconciled to himself. This is bigger than any kind of reconciliation that we will ever see. The same ones who spit in Christ's face, the same ones who beat him and placed a crown of thorns on his head, this is whom he's reconciled. This makes no sense at all, apart from his grace. It's a big deal that sinful man has been reconciled to God Almighty. This is a big deal. But what's even more mind-bending is how he does it. How does reconciliation happen? We who were once alienated enemies, verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In his body of flesh by his death. That's how. The wages of sin is death. The punishment for our sin is physical and spiritual death for all of eternity. Death is a just punishment because we have sinned against a holy and just God. God would not be God if he were not just. And he would not be just if he just sweeped our sins under some cosmic rug and said, no biggie. But we see here in this text, the greatest news in all of the universe, that reconciliation is offered to sinful and wicked people on the basis of Christ's death on the cross. This is the glorious doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That is, he is our substitute. He sacrificed his life and took our sins upon himself. He did this to restore us to himself. This is the greatest exchange in all of the universe. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter 2, chapter 24, he, that is Christ himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree. This is why Isaiah, 700 years before the arrival of Christ, says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Church, Jesus Christ died on the cross instead of you. You should have died. You should have been alienated from God for all of eternity. You should have died in your sins, church, but this is not so because Christ hung on the cross. He took our sin upon himself. He was alienated. He was considered hostile, rebel. The wrath of God was poured out on him for you, church. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the only hope that we have in life and in death. And Jesus Christ is supreme in our salvation, not only because he accomplishes this reconciliation, but he does so by means of his own blood. 
He doesn't outsource this job to someone else. No one else could do this. It's only the blood of the preeminent one, the head of the body, the church. It's only his blood which could pay for our sins. So we see here that Christ is absolutely supreme in the church's present reality of reconciliation. That right now, the church is now reconciled to God. And Christ, he is also supreme in the church's future reality. Look with me again at verse 22. You, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul now moves into the purpose behind reconciliation. In order that you would be presented holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. I like the NIV translation of this. It says, holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. The power of Christ in salvation is such a glorious reality that Christ takes reconciliation a step further. Not only are we reconciled to God, but we are promised transformation in holiness to be presented holy, without blemish, free of accusation. And this purpose, this has future connotations in mind. What Paul has in mind here is of a future kind of glory. This is a picture of glorification. What the church will look like, will finally and ultimately look like on that day when we see Christ face to face. As New Testament scholar Douglas Moo writes, while celebrating the new status that believers enjoy as reconciled, Paul reminds us that this new status is not an end in itself, but has a further goal in view, that we who are already holy in status should become holy in reality. This transformation in holiness, it begins at conversion in the life of the believer. And it is perfected on that last day when we stand before him face to face. Notice with me in the text who is presenting this purified church and who is being presented this purified church. Verse 22, he, that is Christ, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Christ will present you, church, before him. Christ will present you to himself. Are you seeing this? Christ is preeminent in your salvation, Christian, because he not only reconciles you by his bloody sacrifice on the cross, but he is the one. He is the one who will present you holy and blameless and above reproach, and he will present you to himself. Christ is preeminent. He is the main character in our salvation. 
I'm reminded of what Paul says in Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27. This should be up on the screen. Paul writes in Ephesians, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The picture that I imagine is a bride on her wedding day being walked down the aisle by her father. And as the bride enters the room, everything stops. And everyone looks and everyone stands to gaze at the beauty of this bride. Marriage is a wonderful sign pointing to the gospel. But the reality of the gospel is even far more beautiful than any wedding that we will ever attend. Church, you are filthy, alienated, hostile in your thoughts toward him, so separated from him, wicked in your deeds. That's who you were, living in the muck of your sin, orphans, by your sin, with no one, no one to walk you down any aisle. And Christ stoops down and he dies for you. He picks you up and carries you. He forgives you. He gives you a name. He gives you an identity. Holy, son, daughter, cleansed, redeemed. And he picks you up and he walks you down the aisle. And as he's walking you down the aisle, he's cleansing you and purifying you with the water of his word. And as the church gets to the altar, he faces and turns us and he presents us to himself, holy, blameless, and without reproach. And he says, you are mine and I am yours for all of eternity. (laughs) He's supreme. He's sovereign. He's preeminent and pervasive in our salvation. Christ overcomes our rebellion. He overcomes our wickedness. He overcomes our hostility by means of his own blood. And then he presents us to himself, holy and blameless and above reproach to enjoy his presence for all of eternity. This, this is theology to sing. We now move into our second and last point, a warning to us. Verse 23. A warning to us. So this whole passage, these three verses, they're actually 
both in the Greek and English, they're, they're one sentence. So for the sake of flow, we'll read through again, starting at verse 21. Uh, but with particular emphasis, pay attention to verse 23 as we read this. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. In the previous passage, verses 21 and 22, Paul labors to show the theology of the cross worked out in our salvation, that we've been reconciled and that we have been promised glorification by Christ himself. And now in verse 23, in this verse, Paul shifts gears and he gives a sober warning. However, before allowing this text, this warning to work on us, we need to remember that this was first a warning to them. This was first a warning to the church at Colossae by the Apostle Paul. As you will recall, last week, we saw, as Pastor Hans mentioned, one of the occasions for Paul writing this letter was to address a concern in the church. He was to address a concern in the church, and one of the concerns that he was addressing to the church in Colossae was the church's exposure to false teaching. In Colossians 2, chapter 8, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul states, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. In Colossians 2.4, Paul says that the purpose for his writing is so that no one would delude you with plausible arguments. We don't know the exact heretical false teaching but we do know it's serious enough for Paul to address it in this letter. And he does address it. Verse 23. We see that he mentions this warning not to shift away from the gospel. This warning is serious and the consequences have eternal significance. Paul is essentially saying in verse 23, Colossians, if you abandon the faith, if you shift away from the hope of the gospel, then there is no hope of experiencing what I just wrote about, being presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If you shift away, there is no hope. He's saying that the gospel realities in verse 22 will be experienced if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, which you heard. So this warning, it's really serious. There's a weight to this. Now to be clear, here's what I'm not saying. 
What I am not saying is that a genuine believer can lose his or her salvation. The elect of God cannot lose their salvation because God is faithful to preserve his elect, his saints, to the very end. And the reason I'm not saying this is because the Bible doesn't say it. Holy Scripture teaches the exact opposite. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. John 10, verses 27 and 28, Jesus himself says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Romans 8, at the end of the chapter, Paul is really clear that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So going back to our warning in verse 23 of Colossians chapter 1, if the sweep of New Testament teaching shows us that the elect of God cannot lose their salvation, then what is Paul doing here in verse 23? How do we make sense of Paul's argument to these Christians that the realities of the gospel won't be realized if they don't continue in the faith? Aren't they elect? Why would he say that? Won't they continue in the faith? Thomas Schreiner and other New Testament scholars shed some really helpful light here on this warning passage and on others. This warning along with other passages in scripture They serve as a means. This warning serves as a means by which God preserves his elect, his church. The warning passages in this one, certainly, they work. The warning works and it's effective to those who are his, to God's sheep. They hear the warning and they heed the warning. This doesn't mean that the elect hear warnings of Scripture and heed with perfection. That's not true. We're sheep. We stumble. As we make our way to glory, we will stumble in sin, sometimes in really grievous ways. So that's not what Paul is saying. However, hearing and heeding the warnings in Scripture are a means by which God uses to keep the elect, that that his bride will not finally and ultimately fall away from Jesus. Those who are in Christ, those who will never be separated from Christ, they hear the warnings and they fall on their faces in dependence of Christ. Oh Christ, would you keep me? Oh, would I continue in the faith? Would I be steadfast and not shift away from this hope of the gospel? This warning is sheer mercy and grace from a loving heavenly father who has predestined us for adoption as sons and who is faithful to warn us of impending danger if we abandon him. So Roots Community Church, in light 
of the function of warnings in Scripture. Hear this warning this morning. Do not shift away from the hope of the gospel. Do not shift away from the hope that is in Christ. There is no other gospel. If if we shift away from the hope that is in Christ, if we do not continue in the faith, there is no hope to be presented before him holy and blameless and above reproach. For those who have ears to hear, hear this warning. In God's providence, and because of his mercy, because of his care for his children, we have heard this warning. By his mercy, we have heard this warning. And it should land on us. This should land on us with sobriety and with weight and gravity. That's how he keeps his church. That's how he preserves his bride. And this warning should also remind us of the great hope that we have in Christ. The reason we are warned not to shift away from the hope of the gospel is because there is no other gospel. The reason we are warned not to shift away from Jesus and the gospel is because this gospel is truly good news. It's too good to shift away from. The supremacy of Christ to overcome our hostility and wicked rebellion. The the supremacy of Christ to bring about reconciliation and to do so by means of his own blood. The supremacy of Christ to pledge, to promise, to present you holy and without blemish and above reproach before him. This is good news. This is good news. There is no other gospel. As we read in our call to worship, there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. 